Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quite excited today. We've got Jonathan Jones with us, who is a historian and author specializing in the 19th century U.S. history. Uh, he'll soon be joining the Department of History at the Virginia Military Institute as an assistant professor. He's here to talk to us today about an article he's written about civil war and opiate addiction. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. Uh, we're really excited. Uh, we snapped you up on Twitter um, because I, I, it's actually my fault because I saw, I saw your articles like, oh my God, this is really exciting. We need to talk about this. Excellent. Yeah. Isn't Twitter amazing? It's, it's, you can connect with so many different people that you, you couldn't have before Twitter. I just love it. It is the most, well, I mean, that's how Alex and I connected all those years ago and um, how I've just built a network of friends and uh, fellow historians and followers who've become friends at the end of the day as well. So I think it's pretty awesome. So I guess let's start at the beginning. How were men perceived in the Civil War era? That's a good question. So in uh, it, it depends on, you know, where the man was. Um, so man, ideas about like manhood, um, ideas that uh, 19th century Americans held about like what men should be like, what they should do, how they should act, varied pretty widely by, you know, region. So from north uh, to south, there were some differences by a person's class, um, by race, and even down to the individual level. But there were some commonalities, Um uh, for example, pain, pain management. Um, men, whether they were in like, you know, Virginia, which is in the South or New York up here in the North, were supposed to be able to bear pain stoically. Um, so you were supposed to sort of, if you were shot and you had a painful gunshot wound, for example, you were supposed to sort of like grit your teeth and bear it um, and not cry out in pain or ask for painkillers because that meant that you weren't stoic. Um, another example are our bodies. Men, uh, both North, South, East, West, were supposed to be able-bodied, meaning that they had like fully functional, um, whole, complete bodies, and that they weren't disabled. So pain management, um, able-bodied. I think above all, though, men were supposed to be independent, um, the opposite of dependent. So like, for example, in uh, the North, men really, like bourgeois, sort of middle-class uh, men, really valued the ability to control themselves, to sort of like resist temptations, for example, the temptation to drink, um, which is sort of how it was seen. Um, in the South, white men in particular were seen, um, as they were sort of at the apex of society. They were supposed to be the masters of other people. Um, and that meant that they were not supposed to be dependent on anybody else. So these are some of the hallmarks uh, of ideas about masculinity in the Civil War era. So we're here to talk about obvious opiate addiction. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about that. And okay. uh, what were they actually used for? So opium uh, and, and medicines that were based on opium, so like morphine, um, the, a liquid called laudanum, they were the 19th century's um, most, the 19th century U.S.'s most popular medicines. So most opiates were um, sort of throughout human history used as medicines. And I hate to, like, <laughs> it's kind of funny because like as a, as a historian, you're trained to not make sort of broad sweeping statements, but you can make sort of huge 
almost universal statements about opium. Um, opium is one of humankind's oldest medicines. Um, it was, I mean, we're, we're talking like Hippocrates wrote about opium as a painkiller. Um, Galen, uh, medieval Europeans used it all the way, you know, fast forward all the way up to the Civil War era United States. And opium is valued as, you know, one of the best medicines. It was used for, for I mean, practically anything. Um, it was a, a pain reliever. Um, that was one of the primary uses. One of the more surprising uses that I think that we, we kind of forget about because in today's um, medical culture, we think of, of opioids as being painkillers, right? But in the 19th century, opiates were also used to control diarrhea. Uh, I found this one, this great phrase by a physician uh, writing in the 1840s who wrote that opium plugs up the bowels. <laughs> so that's a funny <laughs> way to describe it, right? It just plugs up those, those bowels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really, that's really, I mean, I would never have thought like yeah. you just said, that's all I would think of, but opiates were just painkillers, basically. Yeah, they were, I mean, these were like um, really utilitarian drugs to 19th century Americans. Um, you could give them to your kids. One of the more, one of the more common uses of, of opiates, um, particularly laudanum, the liquid version uh, of opium mixed with alcohol, uh, one of the more common uses was to keep kids quiet. So like mothers, nurses, they would dose their kids with it at night, um, <laughs> wow. which is... I suppose would be useful uh, during lockdown <laughs> for coronavirus. But, wow. Uh, I, I, do you know what? <laughs> when you said keep your kids quiet, all I'm thinking is, you know, that thimble of brandy, you know, that kind of myth just to put in your kids' milk and calm them down. But opiates, really? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, predictably it had, uh, there were mishaps. So like if you read um, papers in New York City in the 1840s, if you read for long enough, you'll find, um, like a little anecdote about, you know, maybe uh, a child accidentally overdosing on laudanum because the nurse gave too much uh, one day, that kind of thing. So these were, these were really common drugs used for a lot of different things and accidents happen, which is one of the reasons that we know that the drugs were used so commonly because overdoses were pretty widely reported um, in newspapers and medical journals. How did they understand addiction in the 19th century? It was, they, they actually had a much more sophisticated um, understanding of addiction than we might think. Um, there were certain elements of addiction that, you know, we know uh, about today that, that 19th century Americans didn't have the benefit of, of being able to know. Um, for example, we know today that um, when you're addicted to opioids, it changes your, the drugs change the chemistry of your brain. Um, and so there's, a, there's sort of like a, an invisible um, brain chemistry element to addiction today that 19th century Americans couldn't have known. But, you know, beyond that, they had a really sophisticated understanding of, of addiction. They knew that someone could be dependent on uh, the drug opium. Um, and by that, they knew that people couldn't just simply like pack it up and quit taking the opium um, at will. Uh, so there was sort of this sense that, that if you were addicted, you lost your self-control, like the drug became a controlling force in your life. Um, doctors recognized that one could be uh, physically tolerant to drugs. So they realized that the longer that you took opium, the more opium that you would need to be able to feel pain relief or uh, other kinds of, of uh, effects of the drug. They also knew that if you, uh, if a person who was addicted to opium um, suddenly stopped taking opium, that they would go through these sort of horrific withdrawal symptoms. So they recognized withdrawal in the same uh, kind of sense that we recognize it today. Um, one of the major differences, though, there was one big difference between the Civil War era understanding of opiate addiction and the modern understanding. And that's the belief uh, that 19th century Americans held that opium addiction could cause insanity. They thought it could make you go crazy. 
um, literally. So opium addicts were in the 19th century U.S. often um, committed to insane asylums uh, because it was thought that they had taken so much opium over such a long period of time that they just lost control over their minds. It's really wild. And so I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's actually one of the, the primary um, evidence pools that I used to study this topic in the 19th century because it was so taboo that Americans didn't necessarily like to write about it openly um, in uh, like their letters and diaries, stuff like that. But if you look at the medical records that were generated by 19th century mental asylums in the U.S., you find um, just case after case after case of someone who's uh, allegedly gone crazy because of their opium abuse. And the doctors describe it in really great uh, detail in medical records. But yeah, it's crazy to think about um, that, that you could be locked up for uh, this problem of, of opiate addiction. So obviously, pre-war addicted men were portrayed differently, weren't they? Yeah, so um, one, of the, one of the interesting things about addiction in the 19th century U.S. is that the treatment of addicted people varied sort of by their, by their gender. Um, so, so opium uh, addiction was gendered. Um, for example, like um, uh, this idea of dependence, the idea that opium made you dependent. Um, for, for opiate addicted women in, uh, the, in the antebellum United States, for example, right before the Civil War, um, it was doctors believed that when women became addicted to laudanum, um, which was a common way to self-medicate for menstrual pain, they believed, um, doctors believed that laudanum didn't necessarily, um, it was, it was like a bad medical problem, but it wasn't necessarily a moral problem when it came to women because, because of ideas of, of gender during this time period, it was thought that women were more naturally dependent. Um, but whereas men, if you, if you turn that script around and apply it to, to male opium addicts before the Civil War, it was seen as uh, especially problematic for a man to be dependent on something other than himself. So opium addiction, um, when it came to men, really raised alarm bells for doctors and other, other people who observed the phenomenon. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that there weren't a lot of male opium addicts before the Civil War in the U.S. Most uh, opium addicts were actually women. So it was seen as a predominantly women's problem. Um, and th there, there were obviously like scattered cases of men who became addicted to opium, but not in the huge numbers that would occur after the Civil War. So let's talk about how and why Civil War veterans got addicted. There was, so uh, the Civil War was this massive health crisis. It caused a, a huge influx of people that, that suffered uh, to suffer from pain, um, diarrhea, et cetera, et cetera. The Civil War was sort of this cataclysmic health event in the medical history of the U.S. And so um, because opium uh, and opiate medicines were the most popular drugs in the 19th century U.S., Civil War surgeons, um, as soon as the war started, immediately sort of reached into their um, doctor's black bag and reached out for, for the opium and started dosing soldiers with it. So one of the most common ways that Civil War soldiers um, became addicted to opiates was through prescriptions for pain management and diarrhea management. Um, one of, to, to give you an example, um, even though uh, Civil War surgeons knew that opiates were addictive, they had very little um, alternative or, or substitute medicines for opium because the drugs were seen as so utilitarian. Uh, and so, for example, in the Confederate um, surgical manual uh, that was passed around to Confederate surgeons, there's this amazing quote that explained this concept that opiates were really important in like martial terms, like in a, a military metaphor. And the, the medical guide wrote that opium was the one indispensable drug 
to surgeons. It was important to surgeons as the gunpowder was to the ordnance or to cannons. So that really, to me, speaks to the centrality of, of opium to military medicine. If you, if you were a Civil War surgeon and somebody brought a, a, a severely wounded soldier to your hospital tent, basically you were going to dose that person with opium if you had it um, to control the pain. So pain, prescriptions for pain, prescriptions for diarrhea. Soldiers also self-medicated. Like soldiers came to learn during the Civil War that opiates were really valuable. So oftentimes they simply um, sort of circumvented uh, the, the surgeon's tent and they would just sort of dose themselves with uh, opiate medicines. One of the most common, way, uh, most common uses of opium among Civil War soldiers was to manage anxiety. You'll find if you look at um, some of the newspapers dating from the Civil War, occasionally you'll find examples of Civil War soldiers who have been like kicked out of the army for abusing opium. And it's likely that they were using those medicines to kind of cope with the anxiety of, of the war. So they became addicted through uh, basically through um, prescriptions for pain and diarrhea and also through self-medication for things like anxiety. So there were soldiers who were medicating while they were still active in the army. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, believe it or not, opium actually kind of flowed pretty freely um, in the Civil War era U.S. There were no regulations. So if you wanted opium, you could, uh, if you were a soldier and you wanted uh, a vial of laudanum, for example, you could send your mom a letter in the mail saying, hey, mom, send me some laudanum. And she might mail that to you in the army. And I've actually found letters where soldiers uh, who are in army camps or, or even prison camps send letters back home asking for opium. So yeah, they took it, uh, they, they really valued it as a way to keep themselves healthy during the war. What was opiate addiction like for these men? It was awful. Uh, it, it was really, really bad. Um, it, opium uh, addiction caused uh, an un, unbearable amount of suffering in Civil War veterans' lives. And that's one of the things that really strikes me in all of my research on the topic is that opium addiction wasn't just a medical problem. It ended up affecting basically every aspect of Civil War soldiers and veterans' lives. So it was, it was truly life-altering. Um, and it could even last for, for men's entire lives. Once, one, once soldiers became addicted to opium, chances are they would never be able to quit. Um, so, for example, opium has opium addiction. Uh, when you abuse opiates for uh, a long duration of time, like years or, or decades, they unleash sort of these cascading bad physical effects. Um, basically, opiates are poisonous. Uh, and so the more that you ingest them, the more that your body is sort of poisoned by the drugs. So, for example, um, after after a couple of years of abusing opiates, civil uh, civil war veterans lost a ton of weight. I found cases where uh, civil war uh, soldier loses like a third of his body weight over just a couple of years. So, this really dramatic um, weight loss, and that that could be bad for um, not just for their bodies because it, it um, you know makes them unhealthy, but it was also bad for their their self image because of of how one's identity as like a man was tied to body image. Um, men were supposed to be, especially when you get closer to the year 1900, when you start to have um, lots of, of pictures of men um, floating around um, like newspapers and things like that, men were supposed to have these sort of like big, bulky, like muscular bodies. But if you're an opiate addicted Civil War veteran and you've just lost a third of your body weight, you're not going to measure up to that idea of like what an ideal male body should be. So it caused suffering in these really unpredictable ways, basically, uh, like weight loss. 
there was um there's a photograph in your article of uh from saying this correctly a, a man who had lesions all over his body as well right yeah yeah it's a really shocking image uh I, uh, I, I was uh, talking to somebody the, the other day who um, his, his uh, daughter, his like young daughter was flipping through the journal of the civil war era where the article appears. And he was, he uh, sent me a tweet and he was like, Hey, my, my daughter's reading your article. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, there's this graphic image. So watch out for that. <laughs> but yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty graphic image um, depicting uh, an opiate addicted man sort of laying out in a hospital bed and he is just covered in lesions, um, which if you look really closely, they appear to be the scars or abscesses from injecting himself over and over and over again with hypodermic needles. Um, one of the hallmarks of, of using uh, injectable drugs are these abscesses that the people who um, abuse injectable drugs get after a while, especially if the needle is unclean. And in the Civil War era, um, they didn't have the same knowledge about uh, germs and, you know, germ theory of disease and things like that. So they didn't necessarily know that they needed to keep the needles clean. And that caused just these terrible skin lesions that really made many opiate addicted Civil War veterans just hard to look at. So it was shocking for people to see uh, these abscesses. And that's what the picture depicts. It was um, a really jarring thing to see uh, someone that you had known before the Civil War, who you had thought of as sort of this like youthful, um, well, like able-bodied guy. A few years later, after the Civil War, you you run into that person, and they're just covered in injection scars. They've lost a ton of weight. They're kind of they they appear to be sort of skeletal. Um, that was a, a really jarring experience for observers and for veterans uh, alike. Tell us, how did this affect family life? It also, you know, opiate addiction, like I said, had really unpredictable consequences. And one of those consequences were that it, it really d destroyed a lot of, of addicted veterans' families. Um, opiate addiction, to, to give you an example, um, opiate addiction could ruin one's marriage. Um, in, the, in the article, I write about this family called the Gulricks, who were this uh, family out in northern Virginia, um, not too far from Washington, D.C., uh, who... Um, their, their marriage basically imploded in the 1890s, a couple of decades out of the Civil War, because the husband, this guy named John Gulrick, who was a Confederate veteran, was severely addicted to morphine. Um, so addicted that for most of the day, every day, he was under the influence of morphine. Um, it got so bad that he couldn't, he couldn't pay attention, so he couldn't work. Um, he had been a lawyer, uh, but then eventually he like lost his lawyer practice, so he stopped making money. Uh, he was, he appeared to be sort of unreliable. So it, anyways, it, you know, fast forward to like 1895, 1896, it got to the point where his wife, uh, a woman named Frances Gulrick, um, literally left him. Um, she, uh, sent him away. She threatened to divorce him because he couldn't quit the, the opium. Um, so it was a really, uh, catastrophic thing for, for Civil War veterans marriages. Um, it also, and I'll also add that opiate addiction causes impotence. Um, there were some medical studies done in the late 19th century U.S. about the effect of opium abuse on men's um, ability to have sex. And opium abuse um, literally emasculated men in the sense that it made one impotent. So, I mean, you, you can imagine what, what kind of effect this would have on men's marriage. Not only did it cause, you know, for, uh, um, bad effects for like couples, their ability to get along, but it also hampered their ability to, to sort of show 
um, sexual affection and things like that. So it was a really, um, there were many ripple effects of opiate addiction for, for people's family life and, and marriage. And here's the wild thing. Um, in the late 19th century US, you know, there are all these um, sort of pseudoscientific, uh, at least from today's perspective, pseudoscientific ideas about um, race science. Um, so for example, um, one of the, when, when men became um, impotent, when white men became impotent because of their opiate abuse, they, they lost basically the ability to have children. And so this um, played on ideas about supposed white racial decline. Um, in the 1890s, many American intellectuals, like scientists, professors, government officials became alarmed because they felt that um, the, the, you know, the, the supposedly superior white American race was, they were having fewer children, They're, they were being overwhelmed in number by immigrants coming from like Europe and Asia. Um, and so there were these widespread uh, sort of cultural fears about white race decline and opium addiction totally played into that. Um, it meant that men couldn't have children and therefore there were these um, doctors who wrote about uh, the idea that like opium abuse was ruining the, the future prospects of America because it was, it would mean that um, the United States would be less white over time basically. So like I said, really widespread uh, really alarming um, effects from opiate addiction. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Could opiate addiction wreak havoc with their military pensions? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the one of the interesting um, findings uh, uh, of my research. Um, military pensions were like on paper supposed to be um, basically recompense for for somebody's military service during the Civil War. And these were given out by um, the United States government to Union veterans or U.S. soldiers during the Civil War. And then the individual Southern states that had been in the Confederacy during the Civil War eventually started giving out um, smaller pensions to Confederate veterans. And theoretically, if you had served in the Civil War, if you had made it through the war without um, deserting the army or, or being dishonorably discharged, you were uh, at a certain point in time supposed to be able to, to receive a pension as recompense, like payback 
for your, your service to the government during the Civil War. But um, in reality, uh, the, the people that screened applications for these pensions brought to the, the process of, of awarding pensions their own moral value judgments. And so oftentimes, if somebody was addicted to alcohol or addicted to opium or suffered from uh, like an STD, like syphilis, the, the person responsible for saying like, yes, you get a pension, no, you don't get a pension, would um, basically deny somebody's pension application because of their um, apparent or alleged immorality. So um, there was this, uh, for example, in the North, in the, you know, for union veterans, there was a law passed in 1890 that said that um, people who suffered from so-called vicious habits were to be denied military pensions. And so I found cases where Civil War veterans who were addicted to morphine were denied um, pensions because of their supposedly vicious habit of morphine addiction. So yeah, it could cost them uh, military pensions, definitely. Um, actually, soldiers uh, or veterans knew this. And so, I mean, they, they were, eventually they got pretty good at um, covering up their addictions from pension examiners. So there was also this realization um, among doctors that veterans oftentimes hid their opiate addictions so that they could procure or, or so that they could cash in their, their pensions, basically. Do you know if a lot of them got away with it? Hmm, that's one of the big mysteries for me. It's so hard to know. Um, uh, it, it's really difficult to, to determine. It's really difficult to figure out any concrete numbers when you're talking about um, opiate addiction in the 19th century because there there simply isn't a lot of quantitative evidence. Um, nobody wrote down the number of people that became addicted to opiates in Civil War hospitals, for example. So it's hard to know um, how many Civil War veterans, um, I guess, got away with uh uh, covering up their addictions and successfully procuring pensions, even though they weren't supposed to get pensions. Mm. Um, but basically doctors um, believed that the numbers were high. And so eventually by the late 1890s, it got to the point that the U.S. Pension Bureau passed uh, a set of rules that um, if a Civil War veteran was, um, or like if it was suspected that a veteran had an opiate addiction that they were covering up, that it would trigger this like secondary investigation. So judging from the, the number of secondary investigations that I've found, it seems like a lot of people um, probably got away with uh, covering up their opiate addictions and getting pensions. Um, and so to uh, a late 19th century politician, this would have been considered a kind of pension fraud. So you mentioned previously that obviously impotence uh, threatened masculinity at the time. Are there any other things that you could add to that that would threaten their masculinity? Yeah, uh, I think one of the one of the most interesting things for me is the the inability of opiate addicted Civil War veterans to work um, after after years and years of of abusing opiates. Eventually, men became so physically debilitated. They lost so much weight. They became so fatigued that they couldn't work. Um, and the, the U.S. Um, at this time, after the Civil War, was a primarily like physically labor-based economy, right? So if you were uh, a Civil War veteran addicted to morphine and you've just dropped, you know, uh, a third of your body weight and you suffered from severe fatigue, that meant that you couldn't work as a farmer or you couldn't work in a factory. So that triggered um, poverty for your family. And it's interesting because one of the one of the primary measures of a man in the late 19th century was his ability to be like the breadwinner, to provide for his family. So when um, opiate addiction 
prevented men from working. It also prevented them from living up to this, this masculine role of the breadwinner. And, you know, Civil War historians um, uh, and historians of, of gender think of the Civil War as causing uh, a crisis in gender in that it um, uh, undermined antebellum ideas about what men should do and what women should do and how they should act and behave. And so the, the inability of Civil War veterans who were addicted to opium to work really played into this idea that the Civil War inverted gender roles. Like, for example, I, I write about in the article and also in my broader book manuscript um, about cases of Civil War veterans who, um, like, lost their jobs. Basically, they were fired because they were opiate addicts or they, they simply couldn't work anymore because they were too physically debilitated to work. And their wives had to step in and start making money to pay for, like, basic family expenses. Um, and that really undermined these these guys' Uh, ability to say that, you know, I am a man because I provide for my family. If you were addicted to morphine, you simply couldn't do that. So you were seen as less than than manly. Actually, I found one case where uh, a guy um, became so physically debilitated by opium that he he stopped being able to work and his wife had to resort to prostitution to pay for things like food and rent. So it was a really catastrophic um, uh, event for family's finances and for men's masculinity too. And for, for the wives, obviously. Um, wow. I mean, resorting to prostitution, I mean, that is going to the extremes. I mean, obviously, she loves her husband and loves her family. It's, right. it's unimaginable. Yeah, yeah. It was this really um, totally catastrophic thing, not just for the Civil War veterans, but for, for basically everybody around them. Um, opiate addiction affected uh, not just the addicted person, but like their wives, their children, um, their community. Uh, actually, when you when you really dig into um, the the records of 19th century mental asylums, when you read some of the cases uh, that were written, like the the medical histories of opiate addicted men, oftentimes they have uh, the doctors will have recorded notes from like the the neighbors of a Civil War veteran addict. And they the neighbors write about how, you know, they had to step in and take over the guy's farm because he was too addicted to morphine to manage the farm. So it really, um, addiction wasn't something that was just contained to the, the addicted veteran themselves, but also affected their families and their communities as well. It was uh, a multifaceted uh, event, basically, in someone's life. Can you compare this kind of addiction to, for instance, the Chinese opiate addiction at the time? Yeah, this is so interesting for me because when you think of, or at least when I started this project, when I thought of like, you know, 19th century opium addict, I thought of, of this stereotype of uh, a Chinese immigrant to like California or somewhere in the West Coast of the U.S. who smoked opium uh, at, at night after work. Like that kind of image usually comes to, to our minds. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, is that um, while there were uh, people that, that fit that sort of stereotype of, of opium addict in the 19th century, most um, uh, American opiate addicts in the Civil War era were not opium smokers. Um, actually, opium smoking was really uncommon among white Americans until very late in the 19th century, towards closer to the year 1900. Um, that's when opium smoking really took off among white Americans who learned the practice from Chinese immigrants. Um, so most, uh, one of the big differences between sort of stereotypes that we have about opiate addiction in the past and the reality of, of the history of opiate addiction is that most addicts were what we would call medicinal addicts. They were people that were addicted to opiate medicines. 
Um, there were, like I said, there were uh, uh, a lot of, of Chinese immigrants who um, brought the practice of opium smoking from China to the United States. Um, so if you look at, for example, San Francisco in the 19th century, San Francisco has these things called opium dens where um, Chinese immigrants would go and smoke opium. Um, and eventually uh, the problem became um, alarming for people that were concerned about immigration. So they, uh, the, the authorities in San Francisco eventually banned um, opium smoking. What's interesting though, is that they didn't ban um, medicinal opiate addiction. So you see this like separation of people that are addicted to opium. Um, some of them get uh, opiate addiction in some contexts gets criminalized, whereas in other contexts like medicinal opium addiction, it doesn't get criminalized. So there's this like separation of, of sort of the, the good kind of opium addict versus the bad kind of opium addict really early on in uh, American history. But yeah, um, one of the, one of the um, other interesting facets of of uh, the difference between opium smoking and uh, taking opium pills or laudanum is uh, the, the, the race component. Um, when Americans thought about, when Civil War era Americans thought about opium smoking, they associated that with, with um, sort of racist negative stereotypes about Chinese people. So um, those, even though opium smoking was a little bit different than medicinal opiate addiction, that um, racial component sometimes carried over and also applied to white Americans who were addicted to morphine or, or opium pills. So you see like in medical books about opium addiction, you see white um, opiate addicts described sometimes as becoming yellow. So you, you literally see them um, in medical descriptions start to lose their, their um, whiteness. And, you know, in the same sense that impotence, for example, played into fears about white racial decline, so too did other aspects of, of opiate addiction as well. That is just so devastating. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's just got like so many um, ripple effects that honestly, it's kind of hard uh, for me as a historian to keep track of them all. <laughs> it's like if you, the, the more that you follow this thread of, of opium addiction and how it affected people's lives, the more that you uncover. And so one of the challenges for me in writing about the topic is honestly just distilling it all down to like a manageable product that somebody can read. Um, I'm also, you know, early in my career, I'm kind of learning how to, to do like history, like how to write history. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's been a challenge for me just, just um, you know, packaging this all in a manageable way. I'm curious to know, please tell me there is such a thing as there were some positive outcomes from opiate addiction. <laughs> this is, this is funny. Um, it's dark. So if you're, you know, if oh, you're into no. dark. There I was, <laughs> I was thinking we're going to have a great story. Something positive yeah. is going to come out of this, but you just made my heart say, go on, tell us. Yeah. Well, if you're into, if you're into true crime stories or if you're into like stories about fraud, this one, this one is for you. Um, there were, uh, so, so the 19th century, um, like medical marketplace, if we think of the business of medicine in America uh, in the Civil War era, it was, I think of it as being like the Wild West of medicine. Um, there were almost no medical regulations on products. Um, so if you could invent a medicine and if you could uh, convince someone that it cured, you know, rabies and cancer and it made you, you know, wake up in the morning, um, somehow the same medicine miraculously did all these different things, then you could sell it. And there was really no one to stop you from doing that. Uh, and so, for example, um, a lot of <laughs> doctors and, and other Civil War veterans who had witnessed the problem of addiction firsthand during the Civil War and after the Civil War, they recognized that they could cash in on this. They could, um, you know, make some money here. There was uh, kind of like a bonanza 
to, to be profited off of. And so, for example, there were there was this one guy named Samuel B. Collins, who was a, a, a guy from Indiana who had fought during the Civil War. He saw some of his fellow soldiers become addicted to opium, and he realized that they were like desperate, absolutely desperate to cure themselves of addiction. So he stepped in and he invented this patent medicine that he called Samuel B. Collins's Painless Opium Antidote, which is the most amazing title. For some reason, that just, the title cracks me up. Um, <laughs> but basically, uh, this guy, Samuel B. Collins, um, traveled around the U.S. promoting this um, made-up patent medicine uh, that he just invented uh, out of thin air as like a cure-all for opium addiction. And he made thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars off of selling this medicine in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. So like I've seen pictures of this guy's house um, after the Civil War. And I mean, he made uh, so much money that he bought this amazing Victorian mansion for himself out in Indiana. Uh, and he just made a ton of money. So for him, um, opium addiction after the Civil War was a good thing because he was able to cash in on that. Uh, which, like I said, is really dark to think about. Um, he was essentially committing medical fraud, promising people that his um, opium antidote would cure them of addiction. In, in reality, it didn't. Uh, so he was cashing in on that. It's kind of this uh, unscrupulous fraud. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you sort of, <laughs> part of me has to admire, um, this is terrible, I shouldn't admit this. But part of me, <laughs> Don't worry. We all have yeah. this one quirk in our own field. Don't worry right. about it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I kind of <laughs> admire the the fact that this guy could make such a bold-faced lie and stick to it for like 30 years after the Civil War, um, despite uh, provoking like the ire of doctors. Um, eventually, it got so bad that doctors, uh, a group of doctors bought a sample of Samuel B. Collins' painless opium antidote and analyzed it to see what, it, what was in it, because... Um, uh, he refused to tell anyone what his, his remedy was made of. He was just like, oh, it works. You don't need to know what's in it. Just buy it. Um, and it turns out when doctors actually analyzed the components of this medicine, it was basically just morphine with like food coloring in it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so really? It, yeah, really. It's crazy. Um, basically, what I, what I think is basically that he tricked people into thinking that they were um, uh, being treated by his opium antidote. Um, because you know, when you're addicted to morphine and uh, you receive, like, like, let's say that you're addicted to morphine and you're used to taking, you know, 100 milligrams of morphine a day, if you slowly are, if your dose is slowly lowered down over time, over a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you still, um, you avoid suffering from the withdrawal, the, uh, the withdrawal effects of morphine, mm -hmm. um, but slowly you're, you're almost kind of cured by having your dose tapered down. So basically, I think that's what Samuel B. Collins did. He realized that even though he wasn't a doctor, he had no formal medical training, he used um, his powers of observation to figure that out. And that's basically what he did. Um, every time someone would mail in for a dose of his medicine, he would put slightly less morphine in it. So he almost tricked them into thinking that they were cured. Uh, but yeah, tell, me, tell me what happened to him. He made a ton of money and nothing happened to him. Um, oh. Eventually he died, um, but he died a millionaire. He was, he got fabulously wealthy off of this fraud that really was never discovered until the very end of his life. And he basically reaped the profits of that without any kind of um, penalty. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say what goes around comes around basically. Yeah, I wish, I, I wish. And I think someday I might write, um, a more like substantial story of this guy's life because he 
was almost, I think of him sort of as being almost like a war profiteer. Like he totally um, spotted an opportunity to shamelessly make money and he took advantage of it. And I think that for me is one of the bigger lessons of, of the Civil War. Like it was such a big event in people's lives that it created, um, for a lot of people, it created opportunities to make money. Um, and a lot of people got wealthy off of the war in unscrupulous ways. And one of those guys was Sam Ubi Collins. I would definitely be reading that. But listen, thank you so much for joining us and Absolutely. telling us. I mean, this story is incredibly tragic um, about these poor war veterans that pretty much a lot of them didn't have a choice, really. You know, it's either die or take the pain medication. And it's just been fantastic for us to be able to know more about this kind of study. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a, it's been a pleasure. Join us tomorrow when Helen Newsom will be with us to talk all about Margaret Tudor. Let's talk about one of Henry VIII's sisters instead of Henry for a change. This is a really interesting talk, so don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.